All right, we're going to go ahead and uh, read our sermon text today, which is Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. And before I'll do that, I do that, I'll say that starting next week, we're going to see Moses' life picturing the work of Christ, as we saw in the Genesis sermons with um, Jacob and with, uh, you know, all of the patriarchs and Joseph. And uh, we're going to start seeing that more next week. This week is going to be the final transition from Genesis into Exodus and how the life of Moses came about. So it's um, going to be a little, little less pictorial and probably a little less life application, but I hope that you'll enjoy it anyway. But uh, this is Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And it says there, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Well, there's a common proverb that we use, which is firmly rooted in the pages of the Bible. It's from small beginnings come great things. How many times do we see this theme repeated again and again and again in Scripture? The life of Moses, just like any human, was one which started out very small. Other than Adam, we were all born as infants. But the story of Moses takes on an additional likeness to the proverb simply because we have the record of his birth and then the most unusual of circumstances which surrounded his infancy. Today's account is a favorite of most people because it's so touching and it's so human. Throughout it, we can almost feel the emotion of the mother, the anticipation of the sister, and the heartfelt pity of Pharaoh's daughter. We see all of these emotions from time to time, but rarely are they combined into a single occurrence. But the story of Moses skillfully weaves them together so that they do. Small beginnings don't always mean small endings, and it would be a mistake to think that they do. And so Solomon gives us wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes concerning the work of our hands. There he says these words, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Well, seeds are small but they may end in a very great harvest. Picking up pennies along life's highway seems almost futile, but for each one saved, there is a greater return when the piggy bank is finally opened. And Jim over here would be able to tell you that. I do mission work with him every uh, Saturday down in the projects, and every single Saturday I pick up a pocket full of pennies. The people down there love to throw it out. It's a status symbol. I don't have anything, and so I can prove that I'm wealthy by throwing money out. And I find quarters and nickels and dimes, and Darla would know this too. I'm going to come home with a pocket full of pennies. Then I put them in my uh, piggy bank. And uh, sure enough, the last time I emptied it, I had $134 in there. And I didn't even have to count it. I just gave it to the bank and they counted it for me. So I got to tell you, from small starts, great things can and do come about. 
So our text verse today comes from Zechariah chapter 4. It's the 10th verse. For who has despised the day of small things? Billy Graham started out his revival meetings where? In a circuit, circus tent in a parking lot in L.A. But eventually his crusades would go out to audiences of tens of thousands of people. His largest crusade was held in Seoul, South Korea, where he preached to an estimated 3.2 million people. So many people came one time that they actually closed down Kimpo Airport. And they had all of the people sit out there while he preached to them. As Seoul, South Korea at that time had a population of only 30 million people, he preached to more than one-tenth of the nation in person and many, many more by television. Whatever great things you aspire to, let it be founded on a heart for the Lord, and I'm sure he will use you in the perfect way to obtain the most perfect results. He sure did it with Moses. The words of the man who spoke to the Lord face-to-face are still read, studied, and cherished 3,500 years later. That's not bad for a person who started out as a baby, seemingly destined to perish in the waters of the Nile River. This is the greatness of God, that he can take what the leaders of the world find below contempt, and he can turn it into the greatest of stories. The superb workings of this marvelous God are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a beautiful child and a little ark. That's verses one through four. Verse one begins with, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Chapter two begins with this amazingly simple pronouncement, which follows directly after the words of woe, which ended chapter one. There in the 22nd verse, which we looked at last week, it said this, so Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. This first verse of chapter 2 gives no name except the line of descent from which they came. Now, both of these people are of the tribe of Levi. This thought then sets up events which follow, and the tribe of Levi will continue to be highlighted all the way through the rest of the Bible. Leaving out the names here is significant because it's intended to show us that a higher power is working behind the scenes apart from, and yet in connection to, human activity. It's not the names of the people which are important, but that God is using the people and the events to work out his plans. And though we don't know it yet, their identification as Levites is intended to show that he has chosen this particular family to introduce the chosen family for the priesthood of Israel, as well as to lead to their great lawgiver Moses. Reading verses like this throughout scripture gives us an advanced notice that something is coming which will be connected to them. And so the verse begins with the word and. It shows a direct connection to what was mandated by Pharaoh while leading us in a new direction at the same time. Because the Hebrew language is deficient in tenses in comparison to English, and you wouldn't know this, but if you have like a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, you'll see a lot of words that are in italics. They're inserted. Those mostly are verbs because they're deficient in these tenses in comparison to our language. And because of this, what is happening here is actually occurring before Pharaoh's edict. He has gone sometime before the edict to get married. From that time, they already had two children. However, the narrative isn't given to tell us any of these things. Instead, it steps into the picture at this point to show that these two 
who are already married will now have to face the edict of the Pharaoh. In order to understand the times then, what we should do is know who the man is, who his wife is, and who the siblings are. The man's name is Amram, a son of Levi's son, Kohath. All right? The woman's name is Jochebed. Their details are mentioned in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. Here's what it says. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. Okay, she is actually Amram's aunt, the sister of his father. But even this needs to be explained further. And the reason why is because in Numbers 26, verse 59, it appears that Jochebed is actually a daughter of Levi. There it says this, The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And so to Amram, she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. But you need to understand what the term daughter or son means in Hebrew at times. The term daughter of Levi doesn't specifically mean that she was his direct daughter, but a descendant of him. She is the daughter of his household. And from this verse, we can see that the names of the whole family who have, with the exception of Moses, actually been excluded from the narrative right here in Exodus chapter 2. The family is comprised of Amram, Jochebed, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. Miriam is the oldest of the three, and it was, she was probably born not long after the marriage was consummated. Aaron was born 12 years later, and he is three years older than Moses. We know that from Exodus 7, verse 7. And now, shortly after the Pharaoh's edict, a child is born. The fate of this third child is now the focus of the biblical narrative. Verse 2, so the woman conceived and bore a son. Again, the Bible has skipped over all of the other details that we might think, well, that's, that's necessary. Why didn't they include that? But they're actually unneeded at this point in time. Those lacking details are going to be filled in at the right time, but the specific wording shows us that there is precise purpose and there's intent to establish the rest of the account. The lack of the woman's name is not at all unlike Genesis 38. I don't know if you remember that, but Genesis 38 is the story of Tamar. In the first paragraph there, eight people or places are named, and yet the one person that you would expect to be named isn't. She is the daughter of one named person, she's the husband of another, and the mother of three more, and yet her name isn't given. And if you understand why she was left out, if you saw those sermons, you know how absolutely important redemptive history that Genesis 38 story is. But God only gives us the details that we need. Anything else isn't necessary for the particular picture that he's trying to give to us. In this, we're provided just what we need to not be distracted from what God is revealing. Because through concealment, there's actually often marvelous disclosure. It is a special note to consider that no sooner had the Pharaoh devised his cruelest of plans against the Hebrews than God determined to bring forth the deliverer of his people. What the devil thinks will be his greatest victory is always turned around to be his most stunning defeat. In this case, out of the mouth of Pharaoh, in his own edict, literally comes the reason for the downfall of the kingdom of Egypt. Verse 2 goes on, And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hit him three months. This portion of verse 2 is so important to the Jewish tradition and culture, as well as to all of the people of God, that it is actually recorded twice in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen refers to it in his speech to the high priest and to the ruling council of Israel. There it says this, At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, 
and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. Later, in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses' parents were rewarded for their faith in the record of those whom God has singled out for their steadfast devotion to him. There we read these words. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. What's interesting is that the specific amount of time, three months, is mentioned and it's mentioned specifically three times in the Bible. What is it about the three months that showed the parents possessed proper faith? What if it were two months? Or what if it were four months? According to E.W. Bollinger in his book, Number and Scripture, the number three stands for that which is solid, real, substantial, complete, and entire. All things that are specially complete are stamped with the number three. There was a pre-appointed time for Moses to be hid for the events of this story to unfold as they should. In fact, the next verse tells us that this time of three months met that time of completion, but it doesn't tell why. Only by understanding the meaning of the individual numbers do the words come to make any sense at all. Otherwise, they seem rather arbitrary and random and possibly even unnecessary. These three months were needed in order for history to unfold in its proper manner. The words used to describe Moses here in this verse are ki tov hu, or literally, and good he. The beauty of the child must have only heightened the parents' attention to the wickedness of Pharaoh's decree so that instead of obeying the king's command, like the Hebrew midwives Shifra and Pua from the previous chapter, they determined to disobey the edict and save their son. And believe it or not, the reason for giving the names of these two women, we talked about that last week in the previous chapter, is to alert us to incidents here in this second chapter and then to parallel them. As I said then, and I gave you the meaning of their names, and I said they're uh, it's not known why their names are even recorded in the Bible, but chapter 2 explains why they are. The name Shifra comes from the word Shafar. It means to be pleasing. The derived feminine noun is Shifra, which means fairness, and so her name is translated as beauty. Thus, her name is given to show a parallel to the child Moses. The parents saw that their child was beautiful, and so they spared him, showing the same faith as Shifra a woman whose name means beautiful and whose example to the Hebrew people of sparing the children was enough to give them the exact same courage. And for all we know, the courage of those midwives may have been evident in the saving of their own son Aaron, who may have been one of the children who was saved by the midwives when they were told to kill all of the male children at birth. That example could have been the impetus for the parents to follow this in the same courageous fashion. The name of the second midwife will have a parallel as well in just a couple of verses. Verse 3, but when she could no longer hide him. This is parallel to what occurred in the previous chapter. There was a time when the Hebrew midwives could no longer hide their actions and they were asked to explain themselves to Pharaoh. And their explanation is what led directly to the third measure to be taken to destroy the Hebrews, which was to toss the male children into the river. Now, during this time of that third measure, the actions of the mother are what lead us directly to the events of the story ahead. Every step is so precisely detailed to show us the absolutely perfect plan of God in a fashion which simply drips with irony as he continuously frustrates the plots and the schemes of man. Verse 3 goes on, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. The word here in Hebrew for ark is the word teva. It indicates a box, a chest, a basket, something like that. Some have attempted to tie this word, teva, in with a coffin, 
but there's no substantiation of this. Rather, its use in scripture gives no indication of this at all. The word is used 28 times in the Bible, but it's only used in two stories, that of Noah and that of Moses. In the first, the ark was made of wood, and it was intended to be used as God destroyed man through judgment, but to preserve mankind through grace. It was used to float over the entire world as the waters prevailed during that time, saving a man of righteousness who would usher in a new dispensation, that of government. In this account, it is made of bulrushes, which is a type of papyrus. It is intended to flow within the boundaries of the earth, which is merely divided by a river. It was used to save a child who would go on to be God's instrument of redemption, excuse me, for his people, while at the same time overseeing God's judgment on a different group of people. The person to be saved in this ark, Moses, will also usher in a new dispensation, that of law. And so we can see a contrast between the two accounts, while at the same time they confirm God's sovereignty and his attentive care for both for and over all of the people of the world and through the unfolding of his dispensational plan of the ages. Verse 3 continues, daubed it with asphalt and pitch. The word here for asphalt is chamar. It's exactly what we pave our roads with. It's used just three times in the Bible. Once at the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and then once at the Battle of the Valley of Siddim, which is found in Genesis 14, and then finally, this last account right here. It is a mineral pitch. Like I say, um, in the Battle of the Valley of Siddim, it's when they got into the uh, battle and people fell into the tar pits and they died. So it's a mineral pitch. The other word for pitch here in Hebrew is zephet. It's also used only three times in the Bible. Once here and twice in Isaiah 34 verse 9. It's a vegetable pitch which was used in the embalming process. This tiny basket of rushes is daubed with materials that are linked to death but which are here intended to preserve life. Verse 3 continues. Put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river. Unlike how this story is often depicted, mom did not plop the ark into the river and let it float away. Instead, she placed it in the reeds, probably hoping that it would keep from floating away. The term for the river's bank here in Hebrew is al-safet hayor, at the lip of the river. It's an expressive way in Hebrew of showing that the river is like a mouth that has two lips. You think of that. I love the Hebrew because it's so expressive, and we miss that in the translations. The Geneva Bible says that she was committing him to the providence of God, whom she could not keep from the rage of the tyrant. There in the very river which the Pharaoh had purposed for the destruction of the Hebrews' male children, mom was purposing the safety of one of them, and God was purposing the deliverance of all of them. Verse 4, And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. This is Miriam, who is the only recorded sister of Moses. After the exodus, when they come out and go through the Red Sea, she's going to be called a prophetess as she sings of the Lord's deliverance from bondage. It is more than probable that while singing that song on that day, she was reflecting on the day when she took her stand and watched to see what would become of her little brother there in the reeds by the river. Her song of deliverance at that time is recorded with these words in Exodus 15. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord rescued Moses from the river through the house of Pharaoh, and yet he later hurled Pharaoh's house into the sea. She was a witness to both of these magnanimous events. Matthew Henry sums up God's care of Moses there on the river in this eloquent fashion. 
He says, Moses never had a stronger protection about him. No, not when all the Israelites were round his tent in the wilderness than now when he lay alone, a helpless babe upon the waves. No water, no Egyptian can hurt him. When we seem most neglected and forlorn, God is most present with us. God used an ark of reeds, Moses, to save. And he used a boy named David to defeat the Philistine. With what may seem useless or weak, a grand road he can pave. And he can turn that which was once vile into something pristine. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame those wise in their own sight. And he has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which seem to have great might. And the base things of the world which seem rejected and the things which are despised objects of scorn, God has chosen these things, yes, these he has elected, because through his son they have been reborn. Our second thought is, behold, the baby wept. Verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Now, before I analyze this verse, I want to ask you an important question. Who is the greatest female financier in all of the recorded pages of the Bible? Anybody know who? It's Pharaoh's daughter right here. She went down to the bank of the Nile and she drew out a little prophet. <laughs> By the providence of God, the child was placed where the daughter of Pharaoh would come to at the time that God knew that she would come. And even if it could be speculated that the mother knew of this as an ordinary custom or not, even if she knew that that's what was happening, the Bible doesn't hint at it at all, thus showing us divine providence rather than human guidance. The fact that the previous verse shows that the sister stood and watched to see what would come about shows that there was uncertainty as to how the events would unfold. The word here for bathe, and it's translated by the New King James Version as bathe, simply means to wash. Whether she was there to bathe or to have her servant bring her water to wash her, or if they were just simply down there to wash their clothes, we really don't know. She simply came to wash. Verse 5 goes on. Then her maidens walked along the riverside. This little section of verse right here appears to confirm that Pharaoh's daughter didn't actually go into the river, maybe because she was afraid of getting eaten up by a crocodile. I have no idea what, but there may be some reason why she didn't go, and it appears that she remained further back and watched as her maidens either went and got water or washed their clothes or did whatever they were doing. While they were busy with that, the eyes of Pharaoh's daughters roamed the shoreline. Verse 5 goes on. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. The word maid here is the word ama, and it's different than the word maidens earlier in the same verse. That's the word na'ar. Okay? This was probably her personal slave, while the other ones were probably friends or maybe household attendants or something. Although there's nothing to indicate this. This is Charlie Garrett kind of thinking this through. I would like to think that this slave of hers was a Hebrew. The imagery would be too wonderful to not at least enjoy that thought for a moment. But whether a Hebrew or not, the one who would free the slaves of Egypt would himself be brought out of the waters by a slave. Verse 6, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. Everything in God's good timing, even the tears of a baby in a basket. When the light shone into the once dark tomb of the ark, it caught the eyes of the child and stirred him to tears for the meal that he was missing or maybe the tender caress that he desired. And nothing like a child's tender cry will rend the heart and the soul of a young lady. Hence the two possibilities for the name of uh, the other midwife from chapter 1, Pua. 
is seen here. Her name Pua, and I explained this last week, is believed by some to come from the word Yapa, which means to shine or be beautiful. And so the name is either given as splendid or light. However, it may also come, and I believe that it's a pun on both words, from the word Pa'a, which is found in Isaiah 42, verse 12, which says this, I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry, pa'a, like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. And because of this, her name would mean one who cries out. Thus, on the banks of the river, the light shined in and the child cried out. And therefore, we have the reason why the two midwives' names were included in the Exodus story at all. Just as they were rewarded with their own households in chapter 1, so will the house of Amram be rewarded with one as well because of their faithful actions. From him will come the household of the high priestly line of Aaron and also the household of Moses, the great lawgiver. Verse 6 goes on. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She would know for several reasons why this is a Hebrew child. The edict of casting the children into the river would make that pretty obvious. Though not following the law directly, putting a baby in a basket and letting him go into the river would eventually have the same effect. Another obvious way to tell that he's a Hebrew, though, would be the sign of circumcision. It was plainly evident to Pharaoh's daughter that the child was a Hebrew. But despite his ethnic origin, the Bible specifically mentions her feelings of compassion as an overriding reason to ignore her father's commands. So for a third time, the edict of Pharaoh has been overturned by events which stem from the edict itself. The irony is perfectly evident in each step of the process leading to the release of the captive people of Israel. In this story, we see where Moses resembles Christ. Both were subject to death by a wicked ruler, Moses under Pharaoh and Jesus under Herod, when he ordered all of the male children to be killed in Bethlehem. But both were delivered in order to become deliverers. Concerning the emotions of Pharaoh's daughter there on the banks of the Nile, the pulpit commentary succinctly says this, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. It is that common spark of humanity which has brought her to ignore her immediate father's commands and to hold to the higher tie which binds. The very place which should have been the final grave of Moses became the place which brought about the unfolding of Israel's redemption. The same is true with Jesus. While the tomb should have been his final resting place, it turned out to be the very place that we have confirmation of our deliverance. The little basket in which Moses was laid did its job and kept him safe from the water until the time when Pharaoh's daughter's maid took it from the river and gave it to Pharaoh's daughter. And when she opened it, the little baby did cry and her heartstrings were tugged at the sight. She surely felt pity knowing the reason why such a beautiful baby was found in such a plight. But God knew what would happen on that day, and he watched over the baby until he was found. And so Moses' life would turn out in a marvelous way. This is the norm with God. His plan will always astound. Our third thought today is he who draws out, which is verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? Oh, what an adorable baby. Did I hear you say it was a Hebrew child? Well, aren't you an Egyptian? Its mother must have loved him very much to put him in a basket, and now she's never going to see him again. It's so sad. But if you'd like, I could go find a Hebrew nurse for him and save you the trouble of finding one for yourself. Would you like that? I'll do it. Poor, beautiful baby. Timing is everything, and Miriam's timing was perfect. The baby is crying. The child needs milk, and Pharaoh's daughter's heartstrings have been tugged 
just enough to make any other option impossible. Verse 7 goes on, that she may nurse the child for you. And the wording by this sister is perfectly calculated to endear the princess to this child even more. I can go find a Hebrew nurse, Hebrew to nurse the child for you. You're a mother now, and your child needs attentive care. Look at it cry, that poor, beautiful baby. She's successfully looked into the heart of the princess and then both anticipated her need and also shaped the outcome of the situation through her words. If Pharaoh's daughter was even a little bit reticent to have this child that was washed away like the sand in the Nile River as the words of Moses' noble sister came from her mouth. Verse 8, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. With her mind all made up, the suggestion is approved and the direction is given. In Hebrew, the word is leki, go. And so she went straight back to her own mother, who, by the way, is the child's own mother. No tale ever penned has exceeded the level of emotion or excitement which is seen in each character of this story. And no tale, true or imagined, has ever encompassed such ironic circumstances. Not only is the child rescued, but it's rescued back into the arms of the once mournful mother. And even more than that, there's an added bonus for the faithful actions that she's displayed, which are verse 9. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. The natural mother will nurse her own child for his new adoptive mother. The added grace is that his new mother will be able to provide for him in a way that was almost beyond imagination. And even more, he will continue for a time to live in his own home of birth. There, he will begin to learn the culture and the traditions of his family and his people. And even more than that, the home will be given wages for their efforts, which are really no efforts at all, but rather the greatest gift of grace that God could ever have bestowed upon them. What Pharaoh intended for evil, God turned into good. And he did it in a manner that still leaves people of faith both smiling and praising him 3,500 years later. Verse 9 goes on. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Imagine the giggles around the uh, dinner table. Imagine the joy of Miriam as she tickled her little brother. And imagine Aaron, just a few years old, enjoying the little brother and never realizing the amazing events which surrounded the home life that he was a part of. When all seems beyond hope, this is when God shows himself the most marvelous to those who understand his tender acts of care. If we can remember this as we face even the most terrifying prospects of life, we will be able to handle them so much more responsibly and with the faith that is most pleasing to him. These individual stories show us that he is never, never far away from us and that he is attentive to what is best at all times. Verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. His age isn't given, but the boy eventually came to the age where it was time to enter into a new phase of life. It's probably, scholars will say, that it was probably between two and three years of age. Whatever the age, he was old enough to know his own people and to have them firmly set in his own heart and in his own emotions. And this is going to be seen as his life story continues to unfold. At the appointed time, the mother who once gave up her son had to do it again. But this time she did it knowing that he would live and that he would prosper. The pain was certainly there, but no doubt there was also a sense of gratitude to God for being given the grace that they had received towards this beautiful child. And verse 10 finishes with these words. So she called his name Moses, saying, I, because I drew him, 
out of the water. The name Moses, I want you to know, it's very frustrating to scholars because it resembles both Egyptian words and Hebrew words. And these words can carry a variety of significations. The explanation for the name is given and at least provides a clue as to its meaning. She called his name Moses because she, as it says, drew him out of the water. The phrase she uses in Hebrew is min hamayim meshitihu, out of the water I drew him. The Egyptian word for son, though, is mesu, which sounds a lot like Moses, and she is claiming him as a son. However, the same word, mesu, is derived from a verb which means to produce or to draw forth. And so in one sense, in her mind, he is the son drawn forth from the water. And this is the same meaning as the Hebrew word used to describe her exclamation right here, which is the Hebrew word masha. It means to draw. But there's one more aspect to consider. The name Moses in Hebrew is Moshe, and it's masculine, singular, active participle. That means something that is ongoing. And so it means he who draws out instead of he who was drawn out. His name then is not based on what she did so much as it is a play of words on what she did. Because she drew him out, he is the one who draws out. An example of this, so you can understand this, is if a baby was born on a train, you might call him the engineer. If a child was born when you're crossing a uh, bridge, you might name him the bridge builder. Moses is he who draws out, and it's a perfect representation of the work that he will do by bringing his people out of the bondage of Egypt. This same word, masha, from which Moses is derived, is used only two other times in the Bible. Both are in parallel psalms of David. They're psalms of praise. In the 18th Psalm, speaking of the Lord, he uses the word which is a mirror reflection of the work of Moses. So think of Moses while I'm reading you David's words, thus picturing the greater work of the Lord. Here's what it says. He sent me from above. He took me. He drew me, that word masha, out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. From this point until many years later, nothing more is said of the life of Moses. Only in the New Testament do we get a taste of his upbringing while in the house of Pharaoh. In uh, Acts chapter 7, during Stephen's great speech to the high priest and the ruling council, he notes this about his great forefather. that says there, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. The evidence of this education is found written all over Moses' writings. While all scripture is inspired by God, I've just got terrible pain right now, I'm so sorry. While all scripture is inspired by God, he uses humans as the way of conveying his word to us. The Song of Moses, which is found in Exodus chapter 15, and the Song of Moses, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, as well as his blessing upon the tribes of Israel and the psalm that he recorded, which is the 90th Psalm, all of these writings of his show his knowledge into Egyptian literature. In other portions of the Torah, his knowledge of particular weather conditions and particular locations indicate that he was versed in those aspects of Egyptian life as well. This marvelous beginning of the life of Moses will lead to a much more marvelous life, which is recorded in great detail. He will come to be called a prophet of God, the most humble man who ever lived, Israel's human redeemer, and the man with whom the Lord spoke face to face. But it all had to start somewhere. The story of his birth 
shows us that great things can come out of the most trying of circumstances. It also shows us that even out of the greatest of heartaches can come joy, everlasting joy. God is in the business of doing the marvelous, but his display in his marvelous hand can go only one of two ways. It can go towards us in grace, it can go towards us in love, it can go towards us in fellowship, or it can go against us in wrath and in judgment. The dividing line between these two, and there's only one dividing line, is the person of Jesus Christ. What we choose to do with him will be the deciding factor in how God deals with us. And so as I do each week, I'd like to ask for just a moment to explain to you how you can become a friend of God and be the object of his affection and blessing because of the work of his son, Jesus. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Everybody here should take just a moment and ask yourself, have I done something wrong in my life? Have I told a lie? Have I done something that I should not have done? That's sin. That's simply, according to the Bible, missing the mark. God has a standard. We miss that standard. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. Imagine an eternal being, a being that just goes on and on and on, <laughs> right? And he's filled with sin. He's going to become more and more and more corrupt as the years go by. The wages of sin is death, and so we die. But there is another death that the Bible mentions, and that's right back at the very beginning of the Bible. It's a spiritual death. God said that on the day that you eat of this fruit, you're surely going to die. And yet Adam lived for 930 years after eating that fruit, right? So either God was a liar or he wasn't talking about his physical death. He was talking about spiritual death. It's a spiritual disconnect from God. And we are spiritually disconnected from God because we inherit that from our father, our first father, Adam. It comes through the male. It comes in the stream of humanity. And so all people are born apart from God. And so we have to have that breach repaired. And that's the coming of Jesus. He was born without sin. He was born without a father. So he didn't inherit his father's uh, sin, a human father. He was born, his father was God. But he was born in the womb of Mary. And so he is fully man, but he's also fully God. And so he was capable of taking away our sin, but he still has to do something. He was born under the law of Israel, God's standard. So he had to fulfill that law perfectly in order to be qualified to replace us. And that's what the four gospel records are for, is to show us the perfect, sinless life of Jesus Christ. Born without sin, going all the way through his life without sinning. And then he gave his life up as an exchange for our sins. And the Bible is very, very clear on how you can be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, I've sinned. I know that I can't go back before my sin and correct the problem. I'm going this way in time. But Jesus is outside of time in his divine nature. And he's within the stream of humanity in his human nature. And so he can make that bridge back to his father. And this is what he did for us. He gave his life up to take away our sin. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Your sin will be nailed to the cross and you will be given the surety of eternal life. It can never be taken away. But each person must make that choice on his own. It doesn't come freely. It comes by you choosing it. So I'd ask that if you've never asked Jesus Christ to save you of your sins today, to do so. And God will be pleased to call you his child, adopted because of the work of his own son, Jesus Christ. Okay? Our closing verse today is from the 118th Psalm. It's the sixth verse. It says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? Right? Next week is Exodus 2. It's 11 through 15, just a couple verses. It's entitled, Shunned by His Own. Think of Jesus. All right? You can see there's going to be a picture there, right there. Shunned by His Own. That'll be our fourth Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where He wants you. He has a good plan, and He has a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, He can part the waters, and He can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Now, some of you have never been to this church before and you don't know, but uh, I always make a poem out of the verses that we uh, look at for the day. And I did it with the whole book of Genesis. I did it with the whole book of Ruth and we'll have a poem of the book of Exodus here pretty shortly, maybe 10 more years and we'll be finished with it. But uh, today's poem is entitled Moses. And a man of the house of Levi went by and by and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived, and a son she bore. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months behind her door, because Pharaoh's edict was cruel and wild. But when him she could no longer hide, she took an ark of bulrushes for him to fit, daubed it with asphalt and pitch on the outside, and put the child inside of it, and laid it in the, by the river's bank in the reeds. And his sister stood afar off, to know what would be done to him through these deeds. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came in stride down to bathe at the river, which is the Nile. And her maidens walked along the riverside where they had come to spend a while. And when she saw the ark among the reeds along the shore, she sent her maid to get it to see what was the score. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept just then. So she had compassion on him, her manner mild and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister to Pharaoh's daughter said, Shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse instead this child for you? Shall this thing I do? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, as we know. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages for sure. So the woman took the child and nursed him tenderly. And the child grew and she brought him and he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Sometimes the irony of the Bible story is so rich and wonderful to behold. God turns even the worst things out for his glory and shows us treasures worth more than gold. When we see his mighty hand so displayed, we have a sure foundation on which to stand. Never should the faithful be fearful or dismayed because our God is glorious and his deeds are grand. Just when all seems lost and it's all out of control, that is the time when God's glory is most clearly seen. Away from us the troubles and trials he does roll, and he leads us into soft pastures, lush and green. O oh, great God who does such marvelous things for us, precious creator revealed in the pages of the word, you who came in flesh, our precious Lord Jesus, to you all praises due, our wondrous, glorious Lord. To you we will praise and to you we will sing throughout all eternity. Let our voices ring. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story, which is just so precious. It's so tender. It's so wonderful to see how you worked the life of these people into a, a, a time of joy instead of a time of sorrow and how you can do that with us as well. You can heal our wounds. You can forgive our sins. And you can restore us to yourself because of the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for that. 
And Lord, I want to thank you for getting me through this sermon. I'm just about to give out here, but I appreciate the fact that you got me through it today. I didn't even know if I'd be here this morning, but you're so good to me. I don't know why. Thank you for that. Lord, I know that there are people that are traveling back uh, some distances in the week ahead, uh, even today, and I would ask that you would bless them and keep them safe on the highway, keep them safe as they travel. And uh, those that are here on vacation, we thank you for them, and we hope that they'll have a good time while they're here. And uh, Lord, just be praised on our lips, be glorified in our hearts, and help us to meditate on your word and to think on you all day, every day, and to give our lives to you as a sacrifice and an offering of thanks and praise. We love you, and we do praise you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the privilege of doing the Lord's Supper. It is my note that it's uh, for the believers who accepted Christ as their Savior. Um, so we will start by um, it's the words come out of uh, 1 Corinthians 11 in regards to the Lord's Supper. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, um, he broke it and said, Take, eat, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let him examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Why don't we uh, just have a moment of silence and you can pray and uh, just uh, think about the Lord and what he's done for us. And uh, if you have any sin in your life that's unconfessed, you might want to consider that too.
always announces that we have some goodies in the back. So feel free to <laughs> partake of those and fellowship a little bit before you leave. And I'll just close this with a word of prayer, okay? Thank you, Lord, for the service. Thank you for just that we are blessed to be able to um, become humble before you, Lord, and take this bread and take this uh, cup, remembering all that you have done for us. Mm. Just um, give us traveling mercies as we go home, Lord, and uh, give us a good week. Help us to serve you in all that we say and do. Just, Lord, make us pure. Make us holy before others. And we might we might uh, just um, be, be uh, people who love you and that people can see it and that they might come to know you mm. as their Lord and Savior. Just uh, bless the uh, refreshments and uh, we thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.